Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. What does the research say about family and community engagement and its correlation with academic achievement? How can school leaders help teachers implement family engagement strategies that work for diverse groups of students? What can schools do to get started with this important work? On this episode, we are pleased to welcome Stephanie Cuevas as we continue with our series on family and community engagement. Stephanie is a doctoral candidate at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Her research focuses on the relationships mixed-status families and undocumented parents have with systems and structures of higher education. She studies how immigration status and notions of legalization influence and shape families' perceptions, understandings, and relationships with higher education. Let's get started. Okay, so welcome, Stephanie. We're really happy to have you here today. I'd love it if you could just start off by telling us a little bit about your work with family and community engagement at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Yeah, so hi, thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be having this conversation with you. So before coming to the ed school, I was a college advisor for Oakland Unified School Districts. And just knowing how big that district was, specifically at the high school level, I worked at one of the biggest high schools in Oakland. And it was just crazy that the school would not prioritize working with parents and parents will come to me, especially Spanish speaking parents will come to me and like just vent their frustrations. So I think that I shared those frustrations and essentially those frustrations brought me to the ed school. So when I got here, I knew that I wanted to work with Professor Mapp and having have read some of her work, I took her class and then eventually asked her to be her teaching fellow, which is kind of her like her teaching assistant and just starting like sharing my experiences like working with parents, organizing with parents. I also, as a, when I was in high school, I was part of a lot of community organizing groups, a lot of in Los Angeles, a lot of like organizing around immigration and immigration reform around the 2005-2006 era. So just knowing that um, the ed school here allowed me to bring in like my personal experiences, both like as a, as a young person who was organizing, but also just working with parents and trying to organize parents and kind of like, being frustrated with schools to like consider parents um, kind of brought me to the ed school. And I've been doing that work here for like the past six years. Um, and amongst that, um, we, we, I've been Karen teaching fellow for about four semesters. Um, that class was kind of also like my own baby that I, I just loved that class. And I'm going to have to do a plug in. Actually, Steve, you also worked on the MOOC that we developed. So we took Karen maps full semester course and we wanted to make it user friendly for like an online course so I worked very closely with her and trying to think about how can we develop you know a 12-week course for graduate students and make it a shorter still just a um, informative version for online so that's some of the work that I've also done 
That's great. Thanks. And I'm glad you put that plug in because if you, if, if you hadn't, I would have, um, and that was honestly at my, my one year at, uh, at the Harvard graduate school of education, that was one of my highlights was working on that family education MOOC, which we should mention is available on Harvard X for anybody who wants to, who wants to watch it there. And I share your, your bias for sure that I think Karen Mapp is doing wonderful work over there. And it's great to hear that you, like many others, I think in this space, came to uh, the ed school at Harvard with a problem in mind that you wanted to solve, and you were able to um, address that problem working with some of the, uh, the most renowned experts in the field. I want to start the conversation about family and community engagement by kind of like you did when you came into the program, which is really kind of starting with thinking about where we are. Where, where do you think we are in this work? Are, are schools, families, and communities collaborating in a way that helps support immigrant students and all students for that matter? Is, is that happening now or do we kind of have a long way to go there? I think the short answer is that, I mean, like in a lot of things in education is that it depends. I think a lot of it's very context dependent and it's it really goes down to how much specific schools and school leadership actually, the thing we have found that a lot in the literature that if school leadership, principals, superintendents value family, community engagement, like partnerships, um, then it's going to bleed into the rest of the schools. Um, and then parents are going to feel welcome. Community members are going to feel welcome. But I think as a whole, if I think nationally on average, um, we're not doing a good job. I think that we think we're doing a good job um, in inviting parents because I, I from talking to parents and teachers as well, often, for example, open houses where where schools invite, like just having those events where schools invite parents in, they feel that that's, that's enough to check that box. So when we think specifically about immigrant parents, um, we often forget how real language barriers are, for example, or not knowing the American system. So we often at schools assume that, okay, we're going to have this event. We send these notes home, these invitations with the child. We make phone calls. We send emails. But majority of those invitations are being done in English, for example. So if families don't speak English or are not fluent or are not comfortable speaking English or communicating in English, that's that creates a barriers for families. So I think that schools think that they're doing a good job, but when we think specifically about immigrant families, and that also relates to other families, so especially marginalized families, um, we have to think more about what is the nature of the relationships that we have and what may be some of the barriers that we are not conscious about um, that these families may be facing in trying to um, create a relationship with schools. Feel free to ask follow-up questions as well. Yeah, definitely. I will. I mean, I, I think that the language barrier is uh, is a good one to mention and one that I think is is lost in translation, I guess, so to speak, in, in many schools that they're not thinking about that when they're doing those kind of traditional things like open houses and maybe parent-teacher conferences. But one other thing that was a real eye-opener for me when I was doing that work on the, uh, on the, on the MOOC, on the Family Engagement Online course, was just thinking about sort of people's perceptions of school. Um, you know, many people who are coming from many different contexts have a different kind of view of what school is. It's not necessarily a safe, happy um, place for them. Is that is that pretty accurate or am I off track there? 
No, I think, no, I think that's very much spot on. And I think that, especially, you know, as educators and people working in schools, like we would like to think that school is that almost protective place, right? That it's a place where we love children, we love learning, and it's a place where you can trust us with your children. And I think that something as educators in, in that space we often forget is what Professor Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, who is also here at the Ed School, um, she has a book on partnerships, on, on family and community and school partnerships, and she talks about this concept of ghost. So she talks about how everyone that's in a re any form of relationship carries ghosts with them. So when we think about teachers and parents meeting for the first time, and that meeting in that classroom is not just them, but is their ghost. And what those ghosts are consist of are like the historical um, traumas that they carry with them. So when you think about like families of color who have experienced schooling as abusive, as subtractive, as uh, subtracting culture. So Angela Valenzuela, specifically talking about Mexican-American students, has this term called subtractive schooling, where schools have been the side where um, the Latino students have intentionally been extracted their culture. So when we think about, we put all these things together, they create goals, they create traumas, and t parents are not going to trust schools because of their past experiences or what they have heard. And teachers may also come in with their own ghosts, which are essentially biases, right? So if teachers had good experiences with schools, they cannot understand how the other party um, also doesn't have similar experiences. So that's just one of the examples of like how it's it's very complicated. And I think that, and I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about it more, but just developing relationships, getting to know parents as human beings, as full people versus just the parent of a child that has to find a consent form for a field trip, for example. Yeah, that's great. And I, you know, one of the, I guess I have a lot of regrets um, of that one year I had at Harvard. There's so many things I, I feel like I missed and Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot was, was one of those. And um, I was reading an article today um, about some people over there that, uh, that are highly influential. So once again, I appreciate you kind of bringing that into the context and that term of ghosts is one that I have not heard, but it makes complete sense. And I think we all have them. And if we recognize that, it's at least kind of we're on our way to solving the problem. So I know I know you spent a lot of time thinking about how immigration status affects how families perceive their children's higher education. What are some key takeaways you can share with us on that topic? So my so my dissertation research is pretty much I talked to undocumented Latino parents about how they help their kids get into college. So all the all their children are already in university, and I pretty much asked them to reflect back how how they supported them, how their relationships with their schools were, and how their immigration status impacted um, those relationships, those messages they give to the kids. So I think two of my if big bucket findings was that one, the answer is that yes, <laughs> immigration status does impact family engagement. Um, Professor Roberto Gonzalez, who's also here, I'm just giving you all all the all the cool names. Um, who else, who's at the Ed School has this has uh, a study that works with undocumented young people, and in his study, he he calls undocumented status a master status, which is how people navigate the world thinking predominantly about how their immigration status limits them. So that finding is also reflected in my own study and how the parents talked a lot about how, for example, going to schools was 
not an option for some of my participants because, for example, they asked for IDs. If parents wanted to be physically present in schools, schools, if I think for in California is more than eight minutes, um, at that at the time that they were parenting their children when they were younger, um, they asked for like a state a formal valid state ID. Well, these parents are undocumented, so they didn't have that. So then they felt like they weren't welcome to schools. And from the school perspective, you think about it, um, that those policies are there for safety, which makes complete sense. But when those policies were developed, they were not necessarily considering what would happen if the parents were undocumented. So now from the school perspective, if this undocumented parent is not physically present in the schools, they may see them as unengaged or not in, not interested or maybe that they're too busy with work. But when in reality, the parents do want to be there, but they can't. So that's one way. This is limiting, limiting in little ways. Parents, for example, also shared that they were scared that their own immigration status was going to prevent their children from getting financial aid. Even though their children were U.S. citizens and they were able to fill out the FAFSA, which is the free application for federal student aid, which is the application that they have to fill out to get financial aid, they were afraid that because it does ask for parent tax information, that somehow the system was going to flag that their parents were undocumented and their children were going to be denied financial aid, even though they had a right to it because they were financial, they were U.S. citizens. So just little things like little aspects like that that kept coming up that when we develop policies, we don't necessarily think about. So I think one of the big takeaways from my research and what I want to push educators is that when we think about college access, when we think about like promoting students from high school to college, that we don't necessarily only think about the individual students, but how students are also part of family units and how what happens with, within the family unit is going to have repercussions for the student. And then a second way that I found that immigration status um, impacted parent like parenting um, and parental engagement was that parents were actually using their own lived experiences to motivate their children. So they were like explain like just share stories in Spanish is called consejos, which loosely translates to advice based on lived experiences. So parents would be like, hey, child of mine, um, I'm undocumented. And because of that, and I didn't get a high school degree, I don't have a college degree, I'm limited in the kind of jobs that I can get. I want you to do better. I want better for you. So they will use their own kind of like struggles navigating everyday life to motivate their children to pursue higher education. And that the literature shows is a form of engagement. Yeah, that's really interesting. That was actually a part of my next question, but I want to back up a little bit to something you said that I think is is really interesting and it just resonated with me and I think it's a little bit higher level. But you were talking about how the policies that the schools put in place when it comes to identification isn't necessarily like an insidious thing. It's not something that is meant to keep people away. It was put in place for a reason, but now it's stopping people from engaging in the school. And I just like that you mentioned that way because I feel like this can be a very divisive issue where it's kind of one side against the other, like many things in education. And understanding that most in most situations in education, I think, and maybe I'm Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but we want, all parties want the best for our kids. So I think if we take the div divisiveness away from it and think about the perspective and the point of view, that will go a long way with kind of empathy and building trust between, um, between groups of people that are involved. 
Yeah, and I think it's a lot has to do a lot with again the going back to and it's not just for immigrant parents and it's not just for my marginalized parents, parents of color, low income parents, but I think it really does go back to almost this concept of ghosts that I was talking about earlier and like acknowledging that those ghosts exist and how do we do how what what kind of work do we do to undo them or like make them go away or like work around them so i think that a lot of the literature around family engagement really frames um this concept of relationships of being intentional of developing relationships professor map has this beautiful analogy that i love that she uses in her class where as a field before we used to say family um involvement so family parental involvement right so that's a term that as a field we used a lot and then we started to realize that it's not just involvement involvement seemed very dry and eventually the field moved to use family engagement and then what professor map uses in her class she's like you know when you're engaged to someone you're making a commitment you're making um you're agreeing to accept the person um for who they are and like you know hopefully towards marriage or not but again it's just the difference in word and what does engagement mean? It's like schools being intentional about realizing kind of like the, the status of power that they hold and being intentional about being the first ones to reach out to families and extending that arm of okay, let's let's form a partnership. Let's form let's let's become engaged with each other because like you said, we all want what's best for the student, for the child. Sometimes even like when we are we get in conversation with each other between schools and families, we realize that what that means may be very different depending on the party. So I think that that's, this is, that's where you have a lot of cultural differences and values and the purpose of schools. But again, if we're not having those conversations and attempting to be in a relationship with each other, then that's where, that's where the, the power of that relationship gets lost. And then we start making superficial attempts of like repairing that, but it's not genuine. It's not with the best interest of the child at the center. So I think again, talking, and I think that's what kind of blew me away from my research is talking to these parents. I hadn't even realized that this concept of like, for example, showing ID kept them from the schools. Um, but again, it wasn't until like I actually sat with the parents and I asked them about their experiences that I learned this. So I think that that's something that I, as a researcher, but also as someone that wants to improve practice for practitioners, I, I really encourage to just talk to the parents who are in your community. Right. And earlier you were talking about kind of parents' experiences and how that, especially with immigrant parents and parents who are undocumented, and how that influenced um, their children's sort of perception of, of education. I want to come back to that a little bit, and I'm going to kind of blend two questions together. The first one is you, you touched upon it a little bit is, you know, how do parents own experiences with school affect the way they communicate with their children about education? But the second part of the question, which maybe even might be even more interesting and perhaps more complicated, is how can schools begin to kind of help bridge that gap between those two different perspectives if they are different? Yeah. So I, I mean, like the, to answer the first part of the question, just how experiences shape Parents, parents' own experience shape how they, like the kind of messaging they give to their children. And I, I think, like I mentioned earlier, like it, one, it does. And then two is that it's just, again, parents are making their own assumptions. Parents are making assumptions of what the role is and what the role of the teacher is. And again, this, this all varies by cultures, by traditions. For example, in the Latino community, um, you respect teachers a lot. You do not question teachers 
teachers are the holders of knowledge. So you you pretty much are entrusting teachers with your child for you to like educate them and do your job. Well, then if that's the value in the mindset that the parents coming with, and then you have a teacher who's very much invested in, um, let's say that they took care of maps class and they're pretty much invested in partnership work and they're trying to develop the partnership work. But if the parent says like, no, like, you know, there's a strict line drawn between home and school, then those are two values that are not matching with each other. So then what is the role of the, of the teacher and kind of dismissing that barrier or like breaking away and like creating the partnership, which then gets to your second part of the question is like, well, what can schools do? And like you mentioned, it's a lot more complicated and I wish there was like one solution to it. But again, I think that the first step and depending on the grade level of the student, um, the student may also have a role in it. Um, I think the first thing is like really get to know who the families of your students are. And I think that's something that we, we haven't mentioned here yet. And I think both of us know that when we talk families and we talk parents, we do not only mean biological parents, right? Because families are made of different structures. They can be grandparents who do the, like the majority of the, of the caretaking because the parents are working. It can be an older sibling, an aunt, um, a neighbor who, you know, agrees to take care of the child. So like, we also need to also deconstruct or like reimagine what we think about family and parental engagement. So how then, how does the teacher then become intentional about like figuring out who that person is in the child's life? And it's really about, you know, inviting the parent into the classroom or like agreeing to meet. So it's about a lot of the reaching out. And it's also when I have this conversation with a lot of teachers, especially a lot of my teacher friends, it's like, okay, well, we are already asking a lot of teachers teachers are already swamped. Like, it's not like they have all these extra hours of free time um, that they're able to just, you know, go out and like do home visits. Um, But I think that if teachers are intentional and smart about the way that they schedule um, meetings with families, it can be the first step. So uh, a couple of the things that people have done that I've seen work successfully in the past are home visits where teachers get trained teachers and other school staff get trained to go to the family's homes and just be there and like get, it is not like a, it's counter to like a social worker. It's not, it's not like a checklist kind of invitation, but it's more like, okay, I'm here. I want to get to know you. You're your child's first teacher. You're the expert in your child. Um, Let's talk about your dreams and aspirations for your child and just engaging in that kind of conversation usually like and like enlightens parents like parents don't realize that yes I have things to share things to a knowledge about my child to share with this teacher and that just begins to develop a relationship between um teacher and parents so just finding little ways not necessarily always have to be like oh structure home visits but like for example I have some teachers share that when parents cannot make open houses or um parent teacher conferences because they work Teachers are willing, okay, like, well, you want to meet at a park? Do you want me to, I have a, a colleague who's like, oh, like, I know you go do laundry at, at this time. Do you mind if I go do laundry with you and we can talk about your child then? But again, it's really about school, school staff getting creative with the ways that um, relationships are built. And that's just the first step. And then how do you build from that? Because once 
teacher and parents, families have a relationship working, honestly, and this there's literature that shows this, but also um, anecdotes from friends and colleagues, that is pretty much the best form of classroom management that you can have. I have a friend who shares like, oh, when my student realized that me and his dad were friends and that we could actually text each other, the child was more likely to be more better engaged and better behaved in the classroom. So then, then, teach, then students also become invested in that relationship. So it sounds like this is the kind of thing that once it starts and once the initiative is made, it's maybe self-sustaining is the wrong word, but it's like when you have a relationship with someone, when you forge a relationship with someone, you know, it takes some nurturing, but once it's there, it's something that you can kind of fall back on. And in this case, it's something that you can, I don't want to say use as leverage, but it's certainly something that can help bring the student back into the fold if there are any any problems. And on the, on the reverse side, be able to very easily praise the student, um, you know, with the parent um, easily because you have their content information and you've communicated with them. Now, the teacher in me, I, I was a high school teacher for 17 years you know, definitely, I definitely can sort of resonate with that, or, or I can, I can understand that, well, you know, teachers are really busy. And then I can also sort of think I'm thinking also to myself, well, you know, I don't have the training for that kind of thing. You mentioned leadership earlier. I'm curious, like, how much of this do you think is something that needs to be the result of quality professional development and training? And how much of it is like you said earlier, well, this teacher just took the initiative to go and do laundry with the, the parent of a student. And I, I wonder if you can, if it's possible to kind of think about that in the context of the more complicated English or dual language learner whose parents may not even share the same language as the, as the, um, as the teacher. So I know that's pretty complicated, but interested to hear what your response is there. No, so I think towards the first part of like the role of the leadership, like I mentioned earlier, um, the leader, like in, in any other structure, um, the leader really does set the pace. So I think if you have a leader, either within a school or district that really values family engagement, they will invest in professional development. Sometimes even, which I'm very much blown away, um, just because, again, my bias of like being in this work and really seeing as central to the development of students, um, is that sometimes schools have not actually had that conversation amongst themselves, like what is the role of families within our work, right? So sometimes even having new leadership or new principles, and I've seen this with, with transitions into new principles where principles come in, understanding the importance of family engagement, and they're like, okay, let's talk about it. And teachers open and say, like, you know, this is the first time that we've actually thought about it, and I don't know. Um, so even beginning to have that conversation is a huge first step. And then kind of like doing the research and the homework or like, okay, well, this is, this is where we are as a school. Um, we, we want to partner with, with parents. What can we do to improve that and taking those baby steps? I'm not saying that you're going to go from like not having any form of relationship to like, oh, we're going to be best friends with all our families, but what can schools do? And I think that again, everything is very context dependent and then bringing it back to your second portion of your question, like it does get a lot more complicated when you have parents of ELL students who may not know the culture of the school, may not be familiar with U.S. schools or in the language barriers and how can schools get creative with, with inviting those parents in when their kind of default often is to be out. Um, and I think that 
again, it's really, a, and again, this is coming from my anecdotal experience about working from working with parents and talking to parents. And it's really about just parents feeling like schools are trying. So for example, a couple of my respondents um, sh like shared that they were often frustrated with their schools because yeah, like for example, at, at open houses, they had, um, they had translators and translation services, but they, and when they got those services, they were like, you know, but the translators weren't good. They weren't um, fluent in Spanish. They knew some Spanish and they carried the dictionary with them, but it was still like hard for me to explain what it really meant. And then I had the same parent then they reflect about a, another, another school of like their younger child. And she's like, well, at the school of my second child, um, that school there, um, I, the teacher knew no word of Spanish, but she, I can see it in her face that she was trying really hard. And so what the teacher ended up doing is like inviting the child to translate between them and asking the child to, to, to incorporate translation between them. So I think sometimes that that's hard to also bring in a child to translate, but just, but just the, the parents saying like, you know, the school, the teacher really wanted me there and wanted to communicate with me. And she went out of her way to find a student to translate for me. Yeah. And I think, you know, you bring up a really good point, which is a simple one, but I, I do think it's important is that if schools kind of step back or teachers or leadership and say, Hey, what are we doing for family engagement? What have we thought about um, for all populations? And if the answer is well, we've done nothing just to kind of recognize that and start somewhere. I mean, I think back to working on that course um, and being involved, you know, with all these issues in family engagement and thinking of my time as a teacher. And, you know, I worked in two very different schools. One was a, an urban school. The other one was a suburban school, more affluent community. And certainly in the affluent community, the parents were very comfortable being in the school. And so they were in the school frequently. Um, but the open houses in the two different schools were night and day in terms of attendance. And I, I didn't think too much then as a young teacher about what we were doing as a school. It wasn't part of my training. It wasn't on my mind day, you know, every day. Um, and so having those conversations, I think are important. And certainly, as you mentioned, um, start with, with leadership. So here's a question um, that I think is an interesting one. How do we know when family and community engagement initiatives are working for immigrant students and for all students? Uh, so there's, I will give you two answers. There's like the research or technical answer where I'm like, there's surveys that we have developed. Um, and I can share that information actually through here, through the ed school, through professor map, she, de they developed, um, a, a, a set of surveys for students, for teachers and for parents that measure, um, whether or not they think they have strong family community engagement partnerships. So that's, that's like the researcher way of measuring that. And I think the, my second answer to that question is that you, it's, it's a, you feel it and it's, it's, it's going to sound cheesy and like stereotypical, but like you feel it in the air of the schools. I've gone to schools that have wonderful, and I'm sure you've experienced it as well, that have great family engagement initiatives, but also just value of families and communities and partnerships that you often see people, like for example, you see people in that building. You see people that you know are not teachers, are not staff, but you see parent volunteers. 
you see community organizers, you see the after school people just engaging with each other in a very natural way versus in schools where are more like if they're more separating, like you don't you often don't see anyone in in the hallways, for example. Um that's just that's a, just a way of feeling. And also like you see it where um student outcomes improve significantly. There's a lot of research and studies that show that when families and schools and communities um, engage with one another in conversation with one another, student outcomes, student test scores, if that's how we want to do it, social emotional well-being, physical activity, um, they do improve because now every everyone in the child's life is in conversation with each other about how we can improve and uh, and sustain that child's um, education and also health, mental health, physical health. So I think that those are some of the ways that that you can see how strong or not family, community, and school partnerships are. I'm glad you mentioned both the research that you have available and also just the kind of feeling that you get, because I've certainly experienced that. And I think you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot and that I see frequently having taught for a long time and also kind of experienced a pretty intense um, uh, period of academia um, at, at, at Harvard was that as teachers, you know, a lot of what we do is by feel. I mean, so much is happening in the classroom. You're getting so much input and you sort of look at kids' faces and you know it, that what you're doing is right. And sometimes teachers, uh, I'll talk about myself, I'll kind of put the onus on me. I mean, I, I would use that more frequently than I would use um, sort of research because it was just right there in front of me. So bringing those two worlds together and understanding that I think they both have value, both the research that, that we have to take and the data that we collect to understand if something's working. And just as importantly that like, I see this happening. I walk into the school and I'm a human being and I see like the excitement or I see people around um, are both equally important. So I'm really glad you mentioned both of those. So obviously a, a big part of our ELL community that we're kind of building and nurturing now um, is we, we believe really strongly that that diversity in language and culture is an asset to our schools and to the community in general. So how do you see that philosophy uh, playing out in effective family and community engagement initiatives in places where you have um, a lot of different demographics and groups coming together? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I would love to hear what y'all are, how you're thinking about it and also putting into practice. And I think that, again, it goes back to what we've been talking about, about developing relationships and actually in getting to know the communities that you're working with. Because um, there, and again, like you mentioned, the, the demographics in schools are not only changing, but they're changing so rapidly that like it often feels that schools themselves don't have enough time to prep for that. And I think going back to our previous conversation, I think that that's where the role of the leadership and being mindful of the changes in the community um, is very important. So again, when you have a, a leader, and again, leader can be just a teacher in the classroom, but also the principal, the vice principal, the counselor, but having folks in schools acknowledge the changes and that parents and communities are gonna be different um, and how do we start to get creative about inviting them in and getting to know them at a personal level? Um, that's that's where it's becoming more crucial. I think more now than ever, it's just being in communication with each other and and figuring out what are the what are the particular needs of 
the particular students that we're working with. Um, another thing that often happens in education, again, because things are changing so rapidly that education scholarship research, but also education training institutions, so schools that train teachers don't have time don't have time or have not caught up with the demographic changes. So we're often, for example, in teacher education programs, we're giving teachers frameworks from like the 90s that are no longer relevant to our student populations now. So how do we push teachers, but also people that teach teachers to also realize that our demographics are changing? So I think that's something that we as a field need to be mindful of and consider as we are developing programs, as we're developing curriculum, as we're training teachers and counselors, principals, to not shy away from this changing demographics, but learn, like talk to them, learn from them, and then share that information. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned the teacher training piece, which I think is crucial in, in so many ways. And you're talking about frameworks that are coming from the 90s and a lot of sort of what I've seen and what I've experienced, not at the ed school, but certainly in other places, um, have been, uh, you know, th these these strategies and uh, frameworks that are that are really not necessarily irrelevant, but certainly irrelevant to um, some of the demographics and the students that we're that we're working with. So Stephanie, is there is there any other um, any, anything else you'd like to add in terms of how people can learn more about your work or what's going on at the ed school or just kind of get started in this work? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely about the ed school and my work is, is I can share um, resources and links to like the work that I've been doing. I think that's something that I'm often kind of it's become my my thing when I talk to practitioners is. And like I mentioned earlier, just think about the ways that the different identities of the families that we're working with may create barriers for engagement. And I think that often if we don't know those realities, we we have no idea how these barriers may be developing. But I think so something that I always encourage is just talk to parents, just talk to family members and ask them like what 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 can we do to improve your life and helping you um, help your child. And I think that actually a, a question that a lot of um, folks that do home visit training, so people that train teachers to do home visits, a question that they often encourage teachers to ask parents when they meet at home visits, it's like, what are the dreams and aspirations for your child? So with that question, all parents, regardless of their identities, of their status, of their socioeconomic status, racial identities, um, have dreams and aspirations for their children. So just getting that conversation started is very helpful for both parents and parents and families and um, educators working with their children. So I think that that's um, something that I'm often encouraging practitioners to do. Frankly, I think that I mean, the idea of just asking a parent what the dreams and aspirations are for their child, I think about that as a parent myself and as a teacher. And for the, for the complicated nature of education in this issue, that's a really easy way to kind of start. And what a simple, beautiful way to kind of start that conversation. So I think that's probably a, a great place to, to, to end this conversation um, and just give people that kind of 
simple strategy to use and then hopefully take it to higher levels. But I really appreciate your time, Stephanie. It's been a wonderful conversation. And I, I think that people will uh, will leave this um, this conversation with a little bit more um, knowledge and perhaps some tools in their tool, tool belt to use as they start to think about how family and community engagement looks in their schools. So thank you so much for your time. No, the pleasure was all mine. You know, I always love talking about family, community, school relationships, and it's kind of like my Kool-Aid. So I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.